Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and turn with us today to the book of Hebrews as Pastor Mitch Pridgen continues his exposition of this most excellent New Testament book. Jesus Christ is, and, and the writer is very explicit about this, He is the exact, ex, there's not one aspect of the image of Christ that does not bear the image of God the Father. Not one. He is the exact, perfect, absolute imprint or image of the Father. He's the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. Think about this. I mean, I, I, want, to be, I want to be careful because I don't want to get too, too far out here. But if you think about the, the presence and the majesty of God in, in, create, in, in, in heaven and in eternity, and can you imagine at the incarnation when Christ, who the angels who are always in God's presence Yet, we know that God doesn't exist corporally as a man in that sense that He is spirit. So they're, 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 they're engulfed in the, mat, in the glory of God, the doxa of God. But they're not seeing a face. And then suddenly, at Bethlehem, a baby is born. And now God has a face. And they're looking upon Him. And they're seeing, literally, they're seeing in Him the glory of God. The majesty and doxa of God. And so He is the perfect personal imprint of God in time. It's almost like the angels, angels would be saying, so that's what He looks like. In Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul writes, I mean, you think about that, go back for a second before I go to Colossians. It just as I'm thinking about that, I'm singing in my head, Mary, did you know? That when you kissed your little baby, what did you do? You kissed the face of God. In Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul writes it this way. He is the image of the invisible God. Icon. Sound familiar? Icon. E-I-K-O-N in the Greek. Long O. Icon. Where do, icon from which we get our word what? If you know a computer, you'll understand this. Icon. Which means a precise copy, an exact reproduction. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the exact reproduction of God. In Colossians 2.9, we read this in Paul's writing, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He was lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. What did Jesus Himself say? I'd like to hear what He says about Himself. What did He have to say about the matter of His being? By the way, for the critics that say Jesus never claimed for Himself to be deity, what does He say, Troy? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Philip, have I not been with you? Have I not walked with you three years? You have seen the lame walk. You have seen the blind see. You have seen the dead raised. Have you not been with me long enough to know that if you've seen me, you've seen my Father? Sound like Jesus was claiming to be equal with God to me. So the Son possessed God's glory. By nature, He bears the exact imprint of the Father's being from eternity. But that's not all. So not only is He the radiance of the glory of God, not only is He the exact imprint of His nature, but look at what He says next. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I could really camp here. I like this. I like all of these. And I've really been abbreviated because I knew my time was going to run out if I didn't. I'm only halfway through my notes and we know we're in trouble, right? But He upholds the universe by the word of His power. We've already seen in what the Hebrew writer says that He is the Creator. If you look back in verse 2, whom also, through whom also He created the world. So we've seen Jesus as the agent of creation, but not only the one who created all things, He is the one who upholds, sustains all things. Maybe you don't think about this kind of stuff. I do. I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I miss teaching science. I really do. I really do miss teaching it. And so my mind oftentimes gets lost in thinking about this kind of stuff. And it wasn't just a couple of days ago, I think. I almost remember where I was when I got to thinking about it. I got to thinking about how orderly everything is. I mean, you're not, you're not going to go to bed tonight and wonder, I wonder if the sun will rise there or rise there. I wonder if we're going to just spin off this terrestrial globe spinning through space. But you know what? You'll go to bed tonight and you will anticipate, and hopefully we will, wake in the morning and everything will be pretty much as it was today in the sense of the way things are going. Why is that? Think of me. I don't want to get too technical here. But think about what gives an element its property is the electron rotation around its nucleus. That's why that, that sense of proton, the number of protons in the atom's nucleus, and also the rotation of the electrons around that nucleus, and yet amazingly, how all that is upheld. That chair isn't going to suddenly transform into something different. If it does, we're in trouble. It's just things are held together. What sustains all things? He sustains or upholds all things. He speaks, and by His Word things are created. He speaks, and by His Word things, all things are upheld. The Greek word translated upholds means, think about this, to support or to maintain. In other words, He supports all things. Think about the old, the old picture we used to have of Hercules holding things up. Well, the only problem with that image is that Hercules is about to be crushed under the weight of what he's holding. 
I mean, you can look at Hercules' face, and it's like, like he's got the weight of his, the world on his shoulders, literally, right? That's not the way it is. Christ upholds, sustains, maintains, supports all things. And in Hebrews 1.3, it's used in the present tense, which is interesting in the Greek. That it, What does it mean by being in the present tense? It didn't mean that He just created and upheld, but He's doing what at this very moment? He's continuing to uphold all things. And will never cease to do that. All things are within His power. All things are under His power and authority. All things. All things. The entire universe is sustained by Jesus Christ. There's not one... When you think about the vast nature of our universe, which is impossible for us to conceive... We can see the figures, but we cannot conceive it. And you think about there's not one square inch of this entire universe that He is not only knowledgeable of, or as R.C. Sproul says, there's not one atom He is not knowledgeable of its existence and His presence at this very moment anywhere in this entire universe. Not only does He know that, but He upholds that. He maintains that. He sustains that. So Jesus, I have no problem saying Jesus is the ruler of the universe. See, when you understand that kind of stuff, I hear, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but you hear people talking about the devil this, the devil that, the devil this, the devil that. When you start thinking about this this way, suddenly you get a great big God and a little bitty devil. The one who created all things and upholds all things by the word of His power. He spoke, it came into existence, and He speaks, and guess what? It's sustained. It's there. For as long as He says it's supposed to be there. And when He wants to change it, guess what? He will. And how will He change it? By the same Word that He created the first time. When He rolls it up like a scroll. Closes the book and it recreates it all over again. It's going to be by the Word of His power. And that new creation will be sustained and upheld by the Word of His power. And you and I will be there. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So, his word is sufficient to create and sustain. Now, here's the point. What prophet prior to the Son, Jesus Christ, spoke in such a manner as this? With such power and with such authority. That should, what I've just given you, should bring new meaning to, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That should just resound now in your mind every time you hear that. There's none. The author's intent is to reveal the Son as the final prophet, the ultimate authoritative prophet. Why are we looking for another prophet? We've got the final one. The best one. There's not a better one to come. The one superior to all who came before Him. The author is communicating to his readers not to turn back to the old, the inferior, not because it was wrong, but because it wasn't complete. The message of the old was that the one, capital O, was to come to accomplish all the old had spoken of and shadowed. But there's still more. Not only is the the radiance of the glory of God, not only is the exact imprint of His nature, not only does they behold the universe by the word of His power, but look at what He says next. After making purification for sins. Don't miss this. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Pause. So the author, at this point, adds something. And what he adds, he's dealt with the creative work of God, the Son, and His authority to uphold all things. And now he transitions to his mediatorial work, as, or his work as the mediator. So now we see Christ as the mediator, which, by the way, is a theme he goes back to in the book of Hebrews. For those of you who read it, you know that. So the role of the prophet... The role of the prophet is to represent God before man. God would want to speak to man, and how would he do that? He'd send his prophets, and they'd speak. Yet here, the role of the son transitions from the prophet, God speaking to his people. It transitions from prophet to priest. For the role of the priest is to represent men before God. There's a transition here. The theme of Christ's priestly office will, as we'll see as we get into this, occupy much of the book of Hebrews, in fact, almost all of it. Its message, the priesthood of Christ, is essential in understanding our salvation. That Christ is both prophet and priest. And that's not all yet. But Jesus fulfills perfectly the priestly office. How? Well, the author clearly tells his readers at the end of verse 3. He says, making purification for sins. What does that mean? Here, the author writes concerning the sacrificial death of the Son for sins. These readers would know that. They've heard the gospel. In fact, Paul says later, I mean, the writer says later, the author says later, he says, by this time you've heard all these things, and by this time you ought to be teaching them, and yet you need someone to teach you. So they knew the gospel. They knew the sacrificial work of Christ at Calvary. So the Son yielded His life as a sacrifice upon the cross, and in doing so, did something. He removed our sins. In fact, can we turn, turn to Leviticus for a moment? Chapter 16 of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Look at verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the merit tent of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Verse 34, And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So, here's the picture. You know it. I don't have to tell you. You have the Day of Atonement. On this Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood from the sacrifice, and the high priest and the high priest alone would enter into the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, 
between the wings of the cherubim was the propitiation or the mercy seat. And what the priest would do once a year is he'd offer that blood on that mercy seat, which would cover. And that's what atonement means. It means to cover. It would cover the Ark of the Covenant, cover the mercy seat. And at that time, the sins of the people were covered for a year. And the next year, he would go back and go back. And it was continuous. That was to be forever. As long as this covenant was standing, this was to be, this was to be the way that it was to be. However, some interesting things to note here. This high priest in, in Leviticus 19 was a man. And as a man, was a sinner. And while the atonement was offered, that was offered was ordered by God, it was, listen carefully, don't misunderstand me, it was an imperfect work. It was imperfect in the sense that it had to be repeated year after year after year after year after year. Not imperfect in what it accomplished at that moment, but the fact that it was incomplete, that it had to be done over and over and over and over and over again. So the atonement prescribed in the Old Testament was a type, a shadow of that which was to come. A once-for-all sacrifice offered by a great high priest. Not just a high priest, but a great high priest. One who was not a sinner. And so Jesus Christ was simultaneously the high priest, the great high priest that offered the sacrifice. And amazingly here, this is what the Hebrew writer is bringing out to us. He was both the priest and the sacrifice. You'll see later in Hebrews, again, for those of you who wrote it, when he passed into the heavenly, what did he carry with him? He carried with him his own blood. So at the altar where the priest of Israel took the blood from the altar of an animal, the great high priest goes into the holy of holies in the heavenlies and enters in there with his own blood to offer his own blood as an atonement. So he's acting not only as the priest, but he's acting as a sacrifice. Here again, put in the context of those who are considering going back to the old. This is new and this is better. Because here you have a, a priest that is a great high priest who is a sinless priest who can represent you before God and do so perfectly with his own blood covering your sins. The sacrifice he offered was himself. And in making such a sacrifice, here's what the Hebrews writer says, he made purification for sins. Christ could make purification for sins because he was himself the pure priest and at the same time, he was the pure lamb without spot or blemish. The pure priest and the pure sacrifice. I love what Jesus said right at his crucifixion. He said, the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. Has nothing in me. Don't you think the enemy was examining him in every way he possibly could? Listening for one break in his resolve to carry through with the Father's will. And yet Jesus said in the, at that very time, he comes. Well, guess what? He doesn't have anything in me. There's nothing in me. And then he continues in verse 3. I love this part. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. That is, that is powerful. And here's why it's so rich when you think about this. 
the Old Testament priest never sat down. Go back to the, given, the, the pattern given for the tabernacle of Moses. And then you go back to the temple that was built. And even the temple that existed, which is the temple of Herod in the days of Christ, which did not have the Ark of the Covenant, but still where the sacrifices were offered. And you'll notice something about the tabernacle and the temples, plural. In none of them were there seats. There were no seats. And the reason that there were no seats is that there, the priest was to never sit down. Why was he to never sit down? Because his work was never done. Day and night, week after week after week after week, what are they doing? Slaughtering and slaughtering and slaughtering and slaughtering till the blood just ran and ran and ran. Can you, aren't you glad we don't do that today when we come to church? It just ran and ran and sacrifices being offered and lambs slain and pigeons slain. It goes right on down the line of those things which are being, their, their work, the priest's work was never done constantly. That's why they rotated. It's exhausting. There were no seats in the temple. Sacrifices were offered continuously. And yet Christ, listen, Christ made His sacrifice, shed His own blood, offered it as an atonement for the purification of our sins. And the writer says, then He sat down. Boy, that is, that is important. Because what it is, how, the reason it's important is it says something. It says, it's done! It's done! There is no other sacrifice, as the New Testament says, there is no other sacrifice for sin. You could, you could gather every lamb on this earth today and slay them and cover yourself with its blood if that was feasible or even possible, and you would not, in the slightest bit, atone for your sins. This expresses the idea of completion. The work was done once and for all. There's no more sacrifice to be made. And then I love what he goes on to say. He didn't say he just took a seat anywhere. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, that's done. Let me just find a seat somewhere and kick it up. No. No. Look at what the writer says. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat a specific place at God's right hand. His Father's right hand. Christ took His rightful place. In other words, pictures, He walks into the heavenly sanctuary. He offers His blood. His blood is accepted as a sufficient sacrifice forever for the sins of every man born of God elect. Who will ever live? And at that moment, it's done. The Father accepts that sacrifice. Christ then sits down at the very right hand of the majesty of God, taking His rightful place of honor, His rightful place of authority. Because you know what the right hand represents? When you sit at someone's right hand, what does it represent? That you exercise all their authority. We often say in our vernacular today, that's my right hand man. What do we mean? That's the one who does all the stuff for us. So Christ was literally the right hand of the Father. Honor and authority. 
His work was done as far as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. However, it wasn't, it wasn't that he just took a break. Yes, the atonement was complete. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's not napping. No, he is actively working even at this very moment. And every one of us better say amen. We're glad that, we're glad that he is. At this very moment, we're gathered here. He is in that heavenly sanctuary, seated in all authority and honor beside the throne of God, and He's doing something for us. In Romans 8.34, we're told what He's doing. Who is to condemn, Paul says? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Listen to what Paul says. Paul knew this. Paul had actually seen the third heaven. Who is at the right hand, he says, of God who indeed is interceding for us. Thank God. He's interceding for us. When Eric and I pray in, in the morning, and Jim and others that pray with us, we may mention this, don't we, brother? Now, we're, in, we're, we're, we're doing what we do in concert with what we already know our Lord is doing. When we pray on earth, we are merely joining in concert with what He's doing in heaven. And so we have, as it were, a trinity in the sense that we have God the Son in heaven interceding for us. We have God the Spirit in us interceding through us. And then we have the privilege of praying. What are you talking about a power? Well, I don't know about Well, I guess we'll just have to pray. Is that all you see prayer as? So even now at this very moment, our great high priest, having successfully and completely atoned for our sins... Praise God. Our sins are forgiven. We've been purified of our sins. Past, present, and future. Is in the very presence of the Father. So what we've seen so far in Hebrews, we've seen Him as prophet and priest, but here we see Him in His third office. We see Him as King. There's no, I have no problem with tonight praying to King Jesus. For He is both prophet, priest, and king. There's no greater prophet. There has never been nor will there ever be a greater priest. And there is no greater king. No king but King Jesus. And we'll pause right there as we wrap up verse 3 on this edition of Crosswalk Radio. We hope that you've been blessed and edified by the Bible teaching, and we thank you for tuning in. You can listen to this sermon and all the sermons thus far in the Hebrew series by visiting our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. Of course, there are many series available to tune into. It's all available at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. Simply click on the Crosswalk Radio page. Thank you for joining us today, and please... Tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.